It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After this episode, go to ChristianQuestions.com to check out other episodes, Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more. Today's topic is, Am I Throwing Away My Life's Greatest Privilege? Part 2. Coming up in this episode... Throughout all of world history, we find accounts of people being entrusted with opportunity and privilege and messing it up. The two men who were entrusted with leading Israel after King Solomon's death are classic examples of this. What can we learn from their mistakes? Here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for over 20 years. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for this episode? 1 Kings twelve twenty four. Thus saith the Lord, You shall not go up, nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. King Solomon ruled over a united kingdom of the twelve tribes of Israel. While the king celebrated the breathtaking splendor of Israel's civil engineering feats and the exquisite opulence of his palaces and buildings, the people, the people were being suffocated under unreasonably high taxes and forced labor. Triber, tribal jealousies also became prevalent between the northern and southern regions, especially between Ephraim in the north and Judah in the south. These conditions, along with Solomon's impending death, set the table for a never-before-seen fracturing of national unity. But there was hope. In part one of this two-part series, we laid the groundwork for what would happen, how this hope could unfold. Simply stated, it all came down to being given extraordinary opportunity and privilege by God, and then the decisions that followed these gifts of opportunity and privilege. There's two key people in this account. That's Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Jeroboam was a servant of Solomon. 1 Kings 11.28 describes him as a mighty man of valor. His father was from Ephraim in the north. And Solomon put him in charge of the conscripted labor force. So Jeroboam's the servant. Rehoboam is one of Solomon's sons. And at age 41, he was given the throne of Israel when Solomon died. His mother was an Ammonite, and interestingly, of all the children Solomon had by these thousand wives and concubines, he's the only son of Solomon named in the Bible. Now, it's easy to remember. Don't get don't get worried because they're alphabetical. <laughs> J for Jeroboam comes first in the alphabet. He's from the north. So picture him on the top of Israel. R for Rehoboam comes second. He is from the south. So picture him on the bottom part of Israel. So as we go through a brief recap of what we talked about uh, in our last episode, putting these, the, the activities of these kings in order. So we're going back, quick review, before King Solomon dies, a prophet of God came to Jeroboam with a very dramatic message, and this is found in 1 Kings eleven thirty-eight. If you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. This is huge. How often does a servant get to be a king? He's not even of the royal line. So, yeah, it's huge, and you're not going to see that happen every day. So this is something that's extraordinary. Out of the ordinary, what's going to happen? Well, Solomon dies, and his son, Rehoboam, takes the throne as Israel's new king. 
the discontented northern tribes choose Jeroboam, the servant, as their spokesperson in presenting a petition to this brand new king. And we see that in 1 Kings 12.4. This is Jeroboam speaking for the people. Your father made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. Now, instead of taking the sound and just advice of Solomon's experienced counselors, Rehoboam instead takes advice from the younger men he grew up with. Bad idea. (laughs) Their counsel of oppressing the people even further was fundamentally opposed to what the experienced counselors had expressed. Back in part one, we had called this advice shopping. And we read a Bible commentary by David Guzik that said that the idea is that you keep asking different people for advice until you find someone who will tell you what you want to hear. And this is an unwise and ungodly way to get counsel. And that is one of the most common ways I've seen people look to get counsel today. And we see it doesn't get us very far. And hint, 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 it didn't get him very far either. As a matter of fact, it went in the opposite direction. The 10 northern tribes were angry. And so they appointed Jeroboam, previously the servant, as their king. There are now clear national dividing lines forming. God's chosen people will soon be called Israel to the north and Judah to the south. After a representative of Jeroboam is stoned to death because he sent Rehoboam. Rehoboam is stoned to death. That's right. Representative Rehoboam, I knew that, is stoned to death. The king aggressively asserts his kingly authority. So he gets aggressive after this, his servant is killed. 1 Kings 12, 21. Rehoboam assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel. Well, God intervened and sent his prophet to the king, 1 Kings 12, 22 through 24. Thus saith the Lord, ye shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. And that's a very powerful statement. This thing is from me. I, God, am allowing this to happen to you. You need to accept it. There's a very interesting and powerful principle here. Here's what happens. For about three years, Rehoboam did walk according to God's laws. However, time had gone by. He then turned to disobedience through gross idolatry. Rehoboam's life is very sadly summed up in this way in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14. He did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. That's a pretty bad epitaph. You don't want that written about you. So what about Jeroboam? What is going to happen to him? And we're going to look at that uh, in just a couple of minutes here. But what we want to do first is understand, wrap up what we've seen from the, uh, the recap of last week and then put some practical application in place. So, am I protecting or polluting my privileges? We've looked at these two kings. We're seeing a lot of mistakes, a lot of bad choices. Julie, am I protecting or polluting my privileges based on what we've heard? The lessons from the account of Rehoboam and Jeroboam have thus far given us much to think about. And with the advantage of hindsight, we can see exactly where they went wrong and why. The question is, could we be doing the same thing? Could I be going down the same kind of path? Say, no, 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 I would never do that. Really? Slow down, let's think a bit. 
as we look at the extraordinary privilege of kingship that both Rehoboam and Jeroboam were blessed with, let's break down some of the elements of their privilege. There were very specific things that their privilege opened up. So, Jonathan, let's get started. What was the first one? They were chosen. That's right, because Solomon chose his son Rehoboam as his successor, and God chose Jeroboam for the northern tribes. And they were chosen to royalty. To be a king was to be the most powerful influencer in the nation. They were chosen to a high position, the seat of power. They were sovereigns over God's own people. No greater power existed on earth among men than that given to those who would rule God's nation, Israel. What an incredible responsibility. They were responsible to do things God's way and his way alone. Yeah, the guidelines for success were plainly laid out for them to follow. So you have very specific aspects of this incredible privilege. And you look at that and say, man, that's amazing, the privilege that God just gave to them. Well, what about us? What about me? Jesus' true disciples are given even higher and even more enduring privileges than Rehoboam and Jeroboam. How do we know that? First of all, let's, before we go into Scripture, let's think about the grace of Christianity. What do you deserve with your Christianity? Do you deserve anything good? No. Nope. Mm-hmm. We're sinful. And yet God gives us incredible opportunity and privilege. Let's analyze this through 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, looking at Christianity. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, let's break this down in the four categories that jumped out in this reading. First, a chosen race. A chosen out of all nations to follow Jesus for the purpose of reconciling the world to God through Christ. This word for chosen is only used in the New Testament to describe Jesus and his true disciples, Revelation 17, 14. And the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. So a chosen race. You know, Rehoboam and Jeroboam were chosen of God, and yet the scriptures tell us that we are chosen as well. So you've got the same thing, but what are we chosen to? Heavenly call. What were they chosen to? Reign for a lifetime. Which is bigger? Our our responsibility and our privilege. That's first. What's next? A royal priesthood. Okay, and let's do the comparison. Jesus' true disciples are chosen to lead, that's the royal part, and revive, that's the priesthood part, the lives and spirituality of all humanity in the resurrection. And two examples of this are 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And 1 Peter 2.5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So a royal priesthood you got this sense now. Now they weren't chosen. These two weren't chosen to be priests. They were chosen to be to to, to reign a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. Priesthoods aren't usually royal, but this one is. So you take the royalty that they were given, 
And then you add this priesthood aspect, which is the reviving of the people, the bringing of the people to God. It is an incredible privilege, and it makes their privilege actually look small. So when you think about what they were given, you say, wow, look what God did for them. Stop, look, and listen, and think about what God has given us. What's next? Well, Peter tells us we're a holy nation. And what's a nation? It's a body of people united under one government, having common interests, bound by mutual obligations and mutual consent to conserve those interests. This holy nation is chosen to be the example of full compliance with God, with Christ as our king. And this is shown in Daniel 7, 27 from the New Living Translation. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will last forever. You see the way that verse reads, the sovereignty and power will be given to the holy people of the Most High. We talked about Rehoboam and Jeroboam being sovereigns of God's own people. Well, guess what? True Christianity has that exact same privilege and opportunity only for eternity in in, in a heavenly sense. It's bigger, it's stronger, it's more enduring. Don't ever minimize the privilege that we've been given when we look at examples like this. Understand the depth of, of, of opportunity that we have that is beyond any of us deserving any of it. And Jonathan, what's our last piece? A people for God's own possession. The King James translates that as a peculiar people. Now, what makes a true Christian, someone really trying to follow Jesus, peculiar or different from every other person on earth is that they are chosen to be sons of God as Jesus is and have God's plans work through them. They are spiritual new creatures as described in 2 Corinthians 5.17. And let's read Titus 2.14 who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jeroboam and Rehoboam had the opportunity to be responsible for God's people. We are God's people. We are his own possession. We are put in a position of such powerful responsibility and privilege, far beyond what they were given. Don't ever underestimate what we are given. We need to take it very, very seriously. So when we look at this comparison between the the grace of God in our lives and God's blessing to them, we've got to look at and say, wow, we are truly in a different kind of position. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, with this privilege, am I protecting or polluting my privilege? Jonathan? The similarity of the awesome privilege we have as true disciples of Christ with these two kings is breathtaking. Let us seriously and intentionally focus on learning from their mistakes as we are plainly subject to the same kinds of human flaws. We're subject to the same kinds of flaws, but we're also subject to the grace of God should we seek it and look for it when we need it most. And incidentally, that's every day. So think about this. The thought of being given a greater privilege than even the kings of Israel were given is truly, truly a staggering privilege. Having sharpened our focus on the enormity of our privileges, how will we find Jeroboam faring? 
The last thing Jeroboam knew was that Rehoboam did not attack the north and did begin to follow in God's ways. Being the king of the northern ten tribes, Jeroboam, remember he was previously a servant, had God's promise of blessing if he would be godly in his decisions and reign. Since Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, followed after God, this must have put an odd piece for Jeroboam to put in place with this faithfulness thing. How come he's following God if I'm supposed to be king? What's happening? Jeroboam now had some choices that he needed to make. So let's pick up where we left off in recounting Rehoboam's, remember Solomon's son, Rehoboam, king of the south, uh, Rehoboam's direction, 1 Kings 12, 24. Thus says the Lord, you must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing has come from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and went their way according to the word of the Lord. So you have this sense that there was a, a, a godly streak in Rehoboam here, and he's following God's direction. He sends 180,000 men home, not to be in readiness for battle. He sends them home. So what does Jeroboam, the king of the north, the former servant, do? Well, the very next verse in 1 Kings 12 tells us what he does now that Rehoboam was following God. 1 Kings 12, 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Okay, that sounds reasonable. What, what do we have here about this Shechem and Penuel? Well, if you listen closely back in part one, you learned that King Rehoboam has coronation in Shechem. So obviously the city already existed. Bible commentary, like John Gill's exposition of the Bible, says that Jeroboam repaired the walls of it, fortified it, built a palace for his residence. And the pulpit commentary adds, it was naturally Jeroboam's first care to strengthen his position by fortifying his capital, and the more so because this city would be particularly obnoxious to Rehoboam as the scene of the revolution. Because that's and where they didn't listen to him. They went to, you know, Jeroboam instead. Another good point. Jeroboam then rebuilt Penuel, but this city might sound familiar because it's where Jacob wrestled an angel, mm-hmm. and it was later destroyed by Gideon. That's right. So we quote again from John Gill, who said this was also a new fortified, perhaps for the better security of his dominions on that side of the Jordan. Pulpit commentary adds that it would secure the tribes of Reuben and Gad against invasion from Judah in the south. So this is a very strategic and immediate thing that he did is to start shoring up first where he would live and then what would be strategic. So Jeroboam, this king of the north, saw God's blessing on his rival, the king of the south. And so, like you both have just mentioned, his first acts were those (laughs) of building his residence and fortifying his positions. Right. Interestingly, they were not acts of worship or sacrifice or praise or honor or reverence. They were about him. It was, he, he overlooked the one who had given him this opportunity. And remember, he was looking down on, on uh, Rehoboam and his actions. And you have to understand, there would have been massive civil war had God not A, intervened, and B, Rehoboam not listened. So they had the blessing of national peace because Rehoboam 
listened to God. This was an incredible blessing because civil war is never good for either side. With that thought, let's let's talk about what about me? Let's talk about us. Am I protecting or polluting my privileges? Julie, what do we have? Our processing of newly granted privileges must be done with an eye towards the subtlety of sin. Is our first thought one of setting into this privilege in one of in our most comfortable and self-preserving way? Or are our first thoughts and actions to just stop and praise the one who gave us this opportunity? Beware the subtlety of self-preservation over giving honor to God. And it is subtle. And we need to be aware because it's so easy to just settle in and say, I'm good. I'm good. God gave me this so I can kind of form it the way I'd like to. And I've got this vision that I can see for myself. Folks, we really need to be careful. We need to be careful because it is always about honoring God in every step that we take. So Jeroboam is kind of focusing on what he thinks is most important. So with his focus on his kingdom and not being the steward of God's people or God's kingdom. Remember that? Remember it's God's people and he says here, you take care of it for me essentially. He's not focusing on that. Jeroboam now begins to suffer from the malady that all self-focused leaders suffer from. There is this common malady and it strikes every one of them. When you are focused on yourself and your position of leadership, this inevitably comes. It's called paranoia. You start to think everything's against you, everything's about you, because you've made everything about you. Paranoia. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 26 to 27. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to sacrifice, offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the people the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. You see what's happening here. He's getting paranoid, just like you said, Rick, that the people are going to leave his region when the people have to go to the south, which is Jerusalem. That's where they've got to worship. That's where the temple is, that they are going to yearn for their religious heritage and that he, Jeroboam, might even be killed. So he purposely starts plotting, set in his heart, to turn the nation away from the South. And what's he going to use in order to do that? Idolatry. Wow. <laughs> we, we, have, we have a quote from the Life Application Study Bible. Great opportunities are often destroyed by small decisions. Jeroboam recognizes the need for God and the need for following God's law, but... His recognition does not bring him comfort or claiming God's blessing. Instead, it brings him fear and doubt. So you have him recognizing, well, the people are supposed to go to the southern part of this kingdom because that's what God said. But that's a problem for me. <laughs> okay, that's a real problem for me. I don't like the fact that the people have to go where God said they have to go. Now, I know he didn't say that, but that's what essentially he's talking about. I don't want it to be this way because then they're going to want to be with that king instead of me. Now, think about that. Just let that sink in for a second and, and just understand the disaster that is now beginning to build. What do subtle fear and doubt always produce? They produce rationalized, God-dishonoring conclusions. Rationalized, 
God dishonoring conclusions. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28. And this is from the New Jerusalem Bible. So the king thought this over and then made two golden calves. He what? said to the people, <laughs> you have been going up to Jerusalem long enough. Here is your God, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Now, wait a minute. How is this possible? Two golden calves? Really? You know, doesn't Jeroboam remember Israel's history about a golden calf? Now, two calves are double trouble. You know, <laughs> yeah. could anyone go along with this craziness? Jeroboam thinks this through and solves this problem all by himself. He figures, I've got this thing nailed down. Yeah, this is how we'll do it. And, we, you know, when we were all studying, preparing for this, we were talking about how could this go so bad so quickly? And we came up with that, unfortunately, Solomon's idolatry had already polluted the people. Jeroboam and the people would have been used to this. It was um, it was so subtle and it was nothing that was, you know, as shocking as it is to us here. So today we read this in shock and disgust, but this would have been something the people would have been used to. But, you know, yeah, the people would have been used to it. But think about Jeroboam's thought process, because he said, OK, the people have been going to Jerusalem, God's city, long enough. Mm -hmm. I've had enough of the people going to God's city, the chosen place. And, and the just it, it, it shows you how far off golden calves. Just let it sink in for a minute. It, and, and what happens next is, is he's going to be repeating the words of the people who were before Aaron 500 years earlier. Now, remember, where are we talking about? Moses had gone up into the mountain to receive the law. He's gone for a long time. The people are saying, oh, no, he's never coming back. So Aaron begins to rally the people together. He brings them together, and he finds a rallying point. And what's his rallying point? It's a golden calf. Let's look at that account, because talk about a grave error and then talk about a repetition of a grave error. Let's look at the first time, Exodus chapter 32, verses 3 and 4, and this is, this is the people with Aaron. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is our God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Well, obviously, Jeroboam, knows Israel's history because he repeated Aaron's words. He's not ignorant to what's happening. He's selective in what he pays attention to. Yeah, yeah Jeroboam said, here is your God, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. That sounds so familiar. But this was an attention getter. So I mean, think about it. It's very logical on a sinful level. The people needed a new and different representation of God to keep them out of that awful southern tribe of judah and jeroboam used these calves as a way of doing it continuing in first kings twelve twenty nine, he set one in bethel and the other he put in dan okay so these are strategically built along the roads on these established places of idolatry that travelers would have to take to get to Jerusalem in the south. So Bethel's about 10 miles north of Jerusalem on the main road. Dan is the northernmost city in Israel. So it's going to be attractive to people to take a shortcut and worship in these areas instead of going all the way down to the south. 
there's some incredible wisdom about listening really to the way you describe that. Make it so the people can take a shortcut. Yes. And when you make it so the people can take a shortcut, they cut short their opportunity. That's what happens when we're looking at godliness. There is never a shortcut to honoring and reverencing the Heavenly Father. Never. Now, Jeroboam is thinking logically. The logic of his thought was to make worship easy. The, the, the spiritual integrity of Jeroboam, well, that was nowhere to be found. He may have been full of logic, but he had zero spiritual integrity in this. His only concern was the preservation of what he saw to be his throne. And in protecting this concern, he turned God's privileges and opportunities into his own personal entitlement. This is a problem, and this happens to a lot of people in a lot of circumstances, and just because you're Christian doesn't mean we're exempt. He saw the opportunity for peace with everybody as a threat, and they're supposed to be loyal to God. We said in part one that the dividing of this kingdom that God allowed, this thing is from me, it was a governmental division only. So the center of worship was supposed to remain in the south at the temple of Jerusalem. Jeroboam, in effect, was trying to build an invisible wall between the northern and southern tribes. Not authorized. Fail. Right. So he is trying to build something that God said don't. And God left the worship to be crossing borders on purpose. And yet he's deciding he knows better. So here, here's... now. Let's go back to, to Israel with the golden calf when Moses is not anywhere to be seen at this point. Here's God's reaction to that first time that his chosen people worshipped a golden calf. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 32, verses 7, 8, and 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. I will make of you a great nation. So God's reaction is, I'll destroy them. Moses says, God, please don't. You delivered them. Let's try really hard. And of course, you know, God knows that Moses is going to, to beg and, and plead for them, and, and he allows him to, to, to stand up for that. But the point is, God's response is, this is not worthy of favor. That's the point. This action is unworthy of my favor. And when we look at that, we say, wow, that's a pretty serious thing. So what about me? Am I protecting or polluting my privileges. Jonathan? We would never replace the sacredness of God with pegging calves of convenience. Really? Well, what about half-hearted service? Well, what about just hearing the word without studying the word? What about logging in to attend our services online when we could actually be there? That's a new one. We need to individually consider shortcut opportunities that are now available in these changing times. And what about reducing the moral standards of scriptural, Scripture because they're, you know, they're so old-fashioned. <laughs> you know, these may all be examples of calves of convenience. Have I polluted my privilege? We need to look in the mirror. What am I doing with what God has given me? Jeroboam is settling, uh, setting up a standard of convenience, and with a standard of convenience comes a broken loyalty. From a broken loyalty comes disfavor from God. 
So we have disfavor right around the corner. Why? Because you take a shortcut, and therefore you cut short God's mercy in your life. This is just plain scary now. It's far too easy to take small steps away from the core value of our privilege for the sake of personal convenience. So Jeroboam diverted the Ten Tribes' spiritual focus and worship to idolatry. What else did he do? Not only did Jeroboam create these calves of convenience, he placed them in such a way so as to sever the people from God's specifically designated worship practices and locations. It's one level of sin to allow the people to maintain an idolatrous belief. It's another level entirely of sin to not only make it convenience, but to encourage the people away from worshiping God. And that's what was happening. It's no wonder the people so quickly turn to idolatry like the nations around them. They're cut off from the royal tribe and family. They're far removed from the temple and the proper way to approach the Lord and convenience and comfort far too easy to resist. Now, remember, Jeroboam was a valiant, valiant, valiant warrior and servant. And he got inevitably put him in this position because you needed somebody strong to be able to manage all of that. But he took all of that strength and made it about himself. The step that he took now put the 10 northern tribes into a disastrous position before God. And before continuing, we want to ask the question, why a calf? <laughs> you know, why not a lion or some other animal? And in a little bit of research, we found that figurines of bulls and calves have been found at several Canaanite sites, but it's thought that the Israelites got that from the Egyptians. The Egyptians revered bulls. Apparently, they recorded the birth of special apis, A-P-I-S, apis bulls, registered their ages at death, and buried them in their shrines. And according to Wikipedia, apis was the most popular of the three bull cults of ancient Egypt. This animal was chosen because it symbolized the courageous heart, great strength, and a fighting spirit of the king. Bulls were symbols of strength and fertility, qualities that are closely linked with kingship. Now, this reminds me of the phrase, strong like bull. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Only you. Moving on. Moving on. Let's continue with 1 Kings 12, 30 and 31. Now... This thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan, and he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Okay, now listen to that carefully. I've got another Bible commentary by David Kusick. Guzik, the legitimate priests and Levites who lived in the northern ten tribes did not like this. So they, along with the others who set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel— moved from the northern kingdom of Israel to the southern kingdom of Judah during this period. And we learn that from Second Chronicles 11, 13 to 16. So now, what do we have? A spiritually desolate kingdom. You know, we have idols, and not just any idols. They're Egyptian. This is the who and the what of the problem. Now, look, whenever you have a big problem form, Inevitably, you have the who, what, when, where, why, and how of the problem. And this, this has got it all in, in, in a grand fashion. So these idols are Egyptian idols. This is the who. 
gods that were false and the what? Tangible, physical idols. That's the who and the what of this problem. What's next? We have the idols, idolatrous locations built on the high places of paganism. So this is obviously the where of the problem. Now you have the location. You know exactly where to go to get what you're looking for. What else? If that's not enough, we have an idolatrous priesthood. Well, of course you have to have a priesthood. It's idolatrous, but of course you have to have it. This is the how. You have the priesthood to make sure everything works according to the rules. What rules? The rules of idolatry. Where is God in all this? Nowhere to be seen. Well, it's logical. It's dark and sinister, but it's, it's logical devising this in your own mind. Of course you've got to do this. Well, yeah. I mean, think about that. Of course you've got to do this. Do you hear what we're saying? Of course you've got <laughs> to do this. What we're saying is you've got this logic because you want a, an objective that is as ungodly as it can be. It is mm -hmm. taking people from God and moving them toward what you want them to do and to be. Jeroboam's commitment to idolatry was deep and it was solid. He replaced every tangible aspect of worshiping God with newly appointed people, places, and things. It's easy to see where this is going to lead. There is no surprise here. This is not a, a surprise ending like, oh, I would have never guessed. This is, brace yourself, it's coming. So when we look at what he's done, you have to ask the question, what about me? Because you look at that and say, I'd never do that. What about me? Am I protecting or polluting my privileges? Julie, what do we have? Along with the pagan calves of convenience always comes the structure to support them. And again, the subtlety of sinful thoughts and feelings take hold and dictate. After all, it's reasonable and it's logical to put the support in place to make our godless worship have a clear place to be found and a clear method to be pursued. Let us instead always and ever only worship the Lord our God and serve only him. And we, I, I might add, in the way he wants to be served. Yeah, in, in the way he requires us to serve him. We have choices. And the subtlety of sinful thoughts and feelings are ever prevalent and need to be dealt with and put aside. And Jeroboam is, is essentially teaching us all of the wrong things to do. So we need to be serious about ourselves. What happens next because you know what it's not over we've we've talked about the the uh, the who and the what and the where and the how of the problem well there's more let's look at first kings chapter 12 the first part of verse 32 jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month like the feast which is in judah and he went up to the altar thus he did in bethel sacrificing to the calves which he had made Okay, so not only is he doing the sacrificing, leading the people, but Albert Barnes notes on the whole Bible said a feast intended as a substitute for the Feast of Tabernacles. So now he's setting up counterfeit feasts. Sounds like something Satan would love, right? Man, a counterfeit feast. Just pause, consider, <laughs> and then throw it away. Okay, we now right. have a new feast and now we have a new date. And here, incidentally, is the when and the why. We've got a new feast and a new date. We now have the when. But you've got to ask why. What's the why? And the why is because I want it this way. 
because I want the people to revere me. I don't want to lose them into that 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 disastrous southern kingdom where God's all of God's places of worship are. I want them to stay with me. That's the why. So we've got the who, what, when, where, why, and how, and it's all disastrous. Let's continue. First Kings chapter twelve, the second part of verse thirty-two and verse thirty-three. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. Now, according to JewishEncyclopedia.com, the sanctuaries at Bethel and Dan were the golden calves were enshrined, were old and recognized places of worship and pilgrimage. The king, by making them royal sanctuaries, gave these old places new significance. And wait a minute, Jonathan, you read um, he stationed the priest which he had made. He went up to the altar, which he had made, even in the, the month which he devised in his own heart. He just made up his own religion. So we have a fake location, fake priests, a fake feast, fake gods, like what part of this did he think was going to be a good idea? And he himself is making the sacrifices. He's legitimizing it for the people, what he set up. He sees the priests as a threat to his leadership because they had loyalty to Jerusalem in the South. So we replace them. So the thing to remember about this is because he's doing the sacrificing, Jeroboam is the king, and now he has taken on the mantle of the priest. Not so. Not so in God's eyes. Simply not so. He would have known Israel's history, so there was no excuse for going down this road. Two examples. In Leviticus 10, 1, Aaron the high priest had two sons who offered strange fire or improper incense on the altar, and they were struck dead. In 1 Samuel 13, 9, King Saul offered a burnt offering after a battle he won. It was the prophet Samuel who only had God's permission to offer sacrifices. Because of Saul's disobedience, he lost his kingship. So you have opportunities shown to him long before. You have opportunities of the priesthood going wrong and the kingship going wrong. And what what does he do? He does both. He does both. He puts both in place. It is a chronic example of someone who is so fixated on their own power they will do anything to keep the people with him even if it means walking them systematically and 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 positively away from the lord their god who incidentally told jeroboam he would be blessed if he followed god's ways so now what do we have this is not just worship it's now a ritual and people love rituals Rituals are something that you you build your life around. This is a ritual. Let's think about this. Let's go back. Let's reread the promise that God had given to Jeroboam because it really makes the point of how sadly uh, off he went here. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 37 to 38. I will take you, and you shall reign over whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. 
if you do what's right, then I'll give Israel to you. Jeroboam had a 100% guarantee of success and favor from the one true God. And instead of following, he led. Why? Why would he do that? Well, first of all, I just want to comment on the if then. If you do, then I will bless. Don't ever forget that. We need to see that clearly. Now, why did he go down this road? Why did he lead instead of follow? Well, you know what? Perhaps some of it was out of confidence in his own valor. I know what I'm doing. I'm a man of, of, of great valor and, and, and mighty. I'm a mighty warrior. God essentially said so. So mm. I'm good. I should be able to do this. Maybe that was part. Perhaps some was out of a lust for power. We've discussed that a little bit already. In any case, what's the bottom line? In any case, he feared losing what he had determined was his instead of reverencing what God had given him as a privilege. He was afraid of losing. What is that? That's a paranoia that comes from self-absorbed rulership. And one thing we know for sure, so far, we don't see him asking the Lord for help, do we? <laughs> and another example about the if and the then if you want a king, then there are consequences. You know, this is exactly what happened when the Israelites rejected the judges and wanted a king instead. The prophet Samuel told them the consequences of having a king, but they didn't care. They wanted a king like the other nations. Now they find themselves in this position of having two bad kings. This is the result of going against God. When God puts something in place, he does it for a specific reason. He is very clear. I wonder how many would have preferred going back to having judges. <laughs> if they had their wits about them, it would have been, oh, for the days when. But unfortunately, these people were just so idolatrous. And, and, and Jeroboam just fed their idolatry and, 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 and brought them even further away from the Lord their God their deliverer. So what about me? Am I protecting or am I polluting my privileges? Jonathan, what do we have? Remember that our opportunity and privileges to, if faithful, reign with Christ and be a part of the priesthood that by God's grace and through Jesus' sacrifice will reconcile the world. Let us put away any thoughts, actions, and rituals of spiritual convenience and focus only on honoring and fulfilling what God has given us in a way that brings him all glory. And that's the key. All glory goes to God all the time. What about me? Am I protecting or am I polluting my privileges? All of this seems too bad to be true. <laughs> Getting tripped up is one thing, but taking such a nosedive into idolatry is incomprehensible. We can see that Jeroboam responded just as unfaithfully as Rehoboam to God's gracious privileges. What was his end result? Whenever anyone who has God's favor decides to become self-serving instead of God-serving, the end result is always the same. Pagan idols built in irreverent locations, served by, idolatrous, by an idolatrous priesthood on unholy days, can only lead to failure before our maker. Further, Jeroboam not only created all of this, he legitimized it before the people by personally making the sacrifices. He was essentially saying, I'm your king, 
You can trust me. See what I'm doing. You can follow suit. It's all okay. Well, let's go back to that scene of his making sacrifices because something else is about to develop here. So let's reread 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 33. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. So, as we said, Jeroboam led the people away from God. He mightily contributed to the corruption of their faith. Another quote from the Life Application Study Bible. Jeroboam wasn't ignorant of what God wanted, and in many cases, neither are we. Amen. Mm -hmm. That's good. Uh, so we have a, a friend of Christian Questions named Brad Sweeney, and in studying this topic, he had this quote, If Jeroboam had possessed a living faith in Jehovah, he would not have resorted to setting up idol worship in an effort to keep those under his rulership from visiting Jerusalem, where they might have been weaned away from his authority. Faith would have convinced him that God was able to build him a sure ruling house and that he did not have to resort to forbidden measures to maintain his authority over the northern tribes, end quote. So it really comes down to faith in God. It does. And Jeroboam was the exact example of what not to do because he had faith in his own mind, in his own thoughts, in his own throne, in his own way, and in his own power. And we got to always ask ourselves, what about me? Well, here's what happens. God notices. <laughs> Interestingly enough, God notices. God wastes no time in calling Jeroboam out and sending a prophet from the south to him. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 1. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, where Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. Now, remember, Judah was in the south and Bethel was in the north. That's right. And this story is about to get really good. But notice how God had to send a representative up to the north. Uh, again, a quote from David Guzik, Bible commentary. Apparently, there were no qualified messengers within the northern kingdom of Israel. This is a sad commentary on the spiritual state of Jeroboam's kingdom. God had to take somebody from the south to go up to the north. Oh, that is lived. bad. That is yeah. awful. <laughs> well, you think about it. You have an unsanctioned author, uh, altar with an unsanctioned idol in an unsanctioned place with an unsanctioned offering on an unsanctioned date. This whole thing is unsanctioned, if you haven't noticed. So we, we need to see that for what it is, and God responds very quickly. So we see God intervening. So before we see what happens, let's ask ourselves a question. What about me? Am I protecting or polluting my privileges? Jonathan, what do we have? God always provides us corrective warnings through his word and those who are spiritually sound. Will we listen and protect our privilege? So we can be sure that we will have ample warning. The question is, am I going to be looking for it and heeding it as it comes across my path? Or am I just going to push it out of the side because it's in my way and I've got an objective to accomplish? And we're going to see that's exactly what happened with Jeroboam. God's prophet would plainly proclaim the destruction of Jeroboam's idolatrous work. Plainly proclaim it. 1 Kings chapter 13, now verses 2 and 3. He cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Then he gave a sign that same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Isn't this an odd scene? So here's he's talking, this man of God is talking to the altar, 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 and actually names names. He prophesies that someone named Josiah would come and burn the bones of the false priests on this very altar. That ends up coming true in 2 Kings 23, 17 to 20, much, much, much later. So God responds. God responds, and the message is very clear. The implements of idolatry will all fall to ashes. That's really essentially what God is saying. You need to pay attention. So what about me? Am I protecting or polluting my privileges? Now that we see God's word coming to Jeroboam, what what can I learn? Julie? Our idolatrous unrighteousness cannot stand before God. So will we acknowledge our pollution of God's privilege and rejoice in its destruction? The Apostle Paul, when he was first called Saul of Tarsus, performed idolatrous behavior in violence and injustice against the early church. Power and self-righteousness came from him alone by forsaking the law of God to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in Philippians 3, verse 8, Paul counted his past achievements as loss and dross and rejoicing only in Jesus. And I'm glad you brought up Paul as a practical example, because one of the things that Paul did, I think that he did right, was to be honest with us about the scary and shameful things that he did and how out of control he was and how he went in the wrong direction. That's really good lessons for us. Yeah. And when you see that, you can respond to it and say, yes, I can learn from that. So as we see the falling from God's favor of Jeroboam, we should be saying, I should learn from that. When we and see you the, turn it around, right, just like Paul did. Right. And you see the Apostle Paul, and you put those two together and say, okay, there can be hope here. And here's what happens. Dramatic miracles follow. We're back to Jeroboam and the prophet who's talking to an altar. And you think, well, what is happening here? Just, just wait. The prophet would powerfully and plainly deliver God's judgment, and yet... Yet this judgment of God would be delivered with mercy as well. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 4 to 6. We're going to actually stop after verse 4. Now, when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar of Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! But his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. So you have this incredible miracle happen in a, in a moment. Jeroboam points and says, seize him. Seize this, this, this man of God. I want him off the scene. And his hand withers right in that moment. Now think about this. Most likely he points with the right hand because that's the right hand of power because that's the way kings did it. And the right hand of Jeroboam's power withered before his eyes. And you get this attention-getting message. This is the right hand of the power of the throne that God gave to him, and he misused, and you see it wither. So what happens next? Verses 5 and 6. 
The altar also was split apart, and the ashes were poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. The king said to the man of God, Please entreat the Lord your God. Now notice, not the Lord our God. And pray for me that my hand might be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. So the only thing that's happening here that's of any positive sense is Jeroboam's looking for God. (laughs) Finally, took him long enough. (laughs) Yeah, he's looking for God, but he's looking for God to restore his own health. He's not looking for God's guidance and his direction and his power and his providence. He just wants his hand back his, his, so he can rule the way he wants to rule. Not a good situation on any level. And the altar has fallen apart before his eyes. And you see this, and this is dramatic. And if this isn't a message to straighten up and turn around, I don't know what is. And we can look at that and say, boy, I'd get that message. Would I? Would I? How do I know? Am I protecting or polluting my privileges? Jonathan? God and his providence can and will put obstacles and challenges in the way of our polluted practices. He will also show us of his mercy by reminding us who is sovereign. Do we heed our corrective experiences and protect our privileges? You can look at Jeroboam all you want and say, I'd never do that. But do I do that in my life, in this modern day, where we have all of these conveniences? Do I create these calves of convenience and go down that kind of road? Do I? And look at it. He had every opportunity. He's healed. The altar crumbled. No one could question it came from God. He's just been spared. Now is the time to turn this thing around. It is. Right? It's it's a perfect timing. Let's go. What does he do next? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's the perfect time to fall to your knees and, and say to the prophet, I have sinned before God. Remember, remember yes. David with Nathan? And he oh. falls before. Remember David as the symbol of, of man after God's own heart. Well, you have the opportunity. God's prophet would then leave and refuse any hospitality or gift because his work was done. He was instructed, get in, do the work, and get out. Here's what happens, 1 Kings 13, verses 7 through 10. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself. I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half of your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread or drink water, nor return by the way which you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. Oh, so you're going to buy an ally, are you? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I didn't detect any reverence or humility here. Did you? You're right. Uh, So Right. He says, good. Hey, come, I'll feed you. I'll give you a reward. And it's essentially he's saying, you've done my bidding. I can pay you. And I'm going to work for me here in the north. Right. Everything's good in the north. Because you're a prophet of God. I could use your power and influence. That's right. Wow. You, you, are, you can serve me. I will reward you. You see the, the overt pride and ego just spilling out of this. And we look at this and say, I'd never do that. Really? Mm-hmm. Folks, think. What about me? 
Am I protecting or am I polluting my privileges? Julie? God will always show us enough to direct us back to him, but he won't make us mend our ways. So once God's messages have been delivered to show us how and what to change, do we remain polluters of our privileges or do we become protectors? What's my choice? That's the question. What am I choosing? Let's take a look at what Jeroboam chose. 1 Kings 13, 33 to 34. Jeroboam did not return from his evil way, but again he made priests of the high places from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. This event became sin to the house of Jeroboam, even to blot it out and destroy it from off the face of the earth. Ah, Jeroboam, Jeroboam. He's just making everybody priests now. Anybody who wants to be a priest can be a priest. 1 Kings 14.10 prophesied that because of his lack of righteous leadership, every male heir of his would be cut off and the family line would lose the throne. That's it. You're out. And here's what happened. As time went on, the north and the south waged war against each other. Jeroboam suffered defeats from Rehoboam's son Abijah, his old nemesis. God strikes Jeroboam and he dies, ending his 22-year reign. His son Nadab becomes king. In the second year of Nadab's reign, when his army is attacking a Philistine town, his captain, Basha, betrays and kills him, making himself king. And this ends the ruling house of Jeroboam. What betrays God ends up in destruction it ended in disgrace do i want to end my legacy there that's a pretty important question and folks you know we look at this and we realize the 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 soberness of these accounts and how we need to say am i throwing away this great privilege and opportunity that god has given me now remember when the prophet was there he talked about King Josiah. And King Josiah, good King Josiah, he would come, but it would be about 340 years later. You see, God allows a lot of things to happen as a result of what we do. He allows our darkness to have its work, to have its chain of events, if you will. When King Josiah came, he incidentally was king of Judah of the southern tribes. He would eliminate all idolatrous worship, return everyone to true worship, and he would follow all of the laws and commandments of God. Incidentally, this is one of the ways we know that the Bible is divinely inspired because there's no way that that man of God could have accurately predicted by name what this future King Josiah would do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So as we wrap this up and we look at this one last time, not at what they did, but what am I doing? Am I protecting or polluting my privileges? Jonathan? It can be dangerously easy to begin down a path of polluting our privileges to follow Christ. Let us realize that we at every step have God's grace there to guide, direct, nudge, and chasten. Are we focused enough to hear and follow? Faithfulness is not an activity or convenience. Let us protect the great privilege of our lives every hour of every day. You've given a privilege you're given an opportunity. What do you do? You have to protect 
that which God gives you so it can grow, so it can develop, so it can mature in you and work the work that he would have it to work in you. In Revelation 2.10, it says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Now we can see the power of what being faithful really means by looking at the mistakes and the bad choices of others and saying, this is not where I will go. I will protect and reverence the privileges and opportunities from God. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and your questions on this episode or other, other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, what can David, a battlefront, and cheese teach us? <laughs> Talk to you about that next week. 